about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Gilly and I'll be giving the first Bible reading today which comes from Psalm 110, which is on page 603 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Hi everyone, my name's Maddie. Um, The second Bible reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 34, which is on page 1139 in the Pew Bible. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam... All die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day, I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, 
What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are, those, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Dean Potter, who was uh, the most famous base jumper, then turned wingsuit jumper, his uh, record was 9,000 vertical feet and a four-mile drift. Insane. Uh, He died last year trying to thread a knot in Yosemite and hit a wall. Uh, With all the deaths in the sport, uh, people have looked at it and thought, well, what are you guys doing? I mean... You're playing with death. Is there any necessity in doing that at all? One of the advocates says, I'm not sure why our culture at large seems to think that people will live forever or that people should live forever. That it might somehow be possible to erase anything that might inevitably cause death to happen. Death is a part of life. You see, what this teaches us about our culture is the way we let death color life. We're a culture that takes our finitude, our mortality, as the thing that gives us energy and strength to live. This was driven home to me uh, when I was uh, reading an interview about Justin Vernon from Bon Iver, a uh, self-titled album, won a Grammy four or five years ago now. Uh, He never wanted to be that famous to win a Grammy and be that big. That wasn't really in his DNA as an artist. And so he really struggled with creativity to to really write any album again. But what happened in last year leading up to an album release last week, uh, he found himself repeating into the sampler, his little recorder, again and again, the same phrase. It might be over soon. It might be over soon. The bad stuff might be over soon. The good stuff might be over soon. So you'd better figure out how to enjoy this life and participate in it. Justin took his mortality as the driving force for his creativity. And I think that's a picture of our culture. We let death color life. Martin Heidegger called it being toward death. All that means is YOLO, right? You only live once. And the more authentically you realize that, the more authentic, energetic, and passionate existence you will live. Let us eat and let us drink, for tomorrow we die. And friends, even as people in church who might believe in something bigger than what is here and what is around us now, we often find ourselves like our culture, coloring our life with our death. I think we often find it harder to find something more motivating than the fact we'll die one day. And so we, like our culture, drink full on life. I think that puts us in as much need of 1 Corinthians 15 as the Corinthians had. Because friends, let me tell you that the resurrection of Jesus gives more energy, 
fire, vision, imagination, and freedom for living than the despair of our culture can ever give. And 1 Corinthians 15 is an invitation to us to not color our lives with death, but color our lives with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and our own coming resurrection. So we're going to track through this passage looking at four things. One thing about resurrection, three things about hope. One thing about resurrection, three things about hope. The first question we need to ask as we enter in this passage and, we, and we, we're confronted with what Paul is saying is why is the resurrection of Jesus so significant, Paul? He says in very strong terms that it is. Just to catch you up, in verses 1 to 11, uh, Paul announces that his gospel, the good news he came to the the Corinthians with, was that Jesus was seen, raised from the dead, according to Scriptures, after he had died, according to Scriptures, only a few days before. But what you learn in verse 12 and 13 is that the Corinthians don't believe the dead get raised at all. So Paul's thinking, we need to talk about some things together, me and you. Because the Corinthians, they followed Greek culture, as many others did at the time, really. Only Jews really believed in any sort of resurrection. Greek thought was that the body was bad and the spirit was good and up there was good and get away from here. So just die and get on with it kind of thing. Get away from the body. There's no need for a resurrection of that lump of badness that you inhabit. The resurrection was didn't make sense in that culture just like it doesn't make sense in ours, where we don't believe there is anything belonging to physical, that everything is essentially material. The resurrection is as crazy to our ears as it would maybe be to Greek ears. But what Paul says is that without the resurrection, it is business as usual. There is nothing to be gained from Christian faith. In fact, in verse 19, he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Such is the difficulty of the Christian life, the toll of it, some even losing their lives for it. There is no point in sticking around singing hymns if Jesus is not raised from the dead, according to Paul. What what does he say? What does that make sense? There's kind of a twofold piece to his logic. He says in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we found to be false witnesses about God. See what he's saying? Our message, well, that's wrong because Jesus wasn't raised. Your faith in the wrong message is wrong. And us who pretend to be part of God, well, we're wrong and God doesn't really like us either. Everything about the message is now null and void. But there's a second part to it. In verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Not only is the message void, but the effects of the message are void. Without resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sin, And there is no life in the hereafter. You might be thinking, well, 
Doesn't Jesus deal with sin on the cross rather than in his resurrection? What's that about? Well, the resurrection is, is, is the vindication of Christ. It's, it's God's approval of him and his appointing of him. And without the stamp of approval on Christ's life, there is no stamp of approval on ours. There is no new life to step up into. There is no new beginning. We are stuck in our sin. We are stuck in our mistakes. We are stuck under the wrath of God. And we are stuck under death. You see, the thing you need to know about the resurrection is the resurrection is our only hope. And without the resurrection, there is nothing in Christian faith worth holding. But with it is everything. Now, this isn't just abstract either. Have a look down at verse 29 for a second. Now, he says, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Now, that's a bit of a weird phrase. There's no, uh, uh, nothing in Christian history that says that the dead ever got baptized. But what we think is happening here is that someone died and others close to them decided to get baptized. Why? Out of a longing to be with them again. They got baptized so that one day they will be raised together and once again have a relationship. Let me put it this way. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but my faith was prayed into being, I think, by my grandparents. They never got to see me become a Christian. They both died before I became a Christian. So I've never got to say thank you. But the resurrection of Jesus means that one day, when we're both raised, I get to go up to them and say, you know how you prayed for me? I became a pastor. Friends, that is hope. Resurrection to new relationship. That is a new beginning. That is why the resurrection is our only hope. That's the one thing about resurrection. Three things about hope. The first thing you've got to know about hope in the resurrection is that it gives birth to freedom. It gives birth to freedom. It's like when you know that that day is coming when you'll be raised from the dead. There's new courage and verve to go at life knowing that your future is secure. But maybe that's a step too far for you right now. Maybe you're thinking, well, how do I know that I'll be raised from the dead? How do I know that that resurrection can be for me? That's where I want to draw your attention to, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That word first fruits is very important. Uh, not many farmers in the room, I'm sure there's some. Uh, I'm definitely not a farmer. But first fruits is a very agricultural term for the first kind of head of grain of the harvest that showed the quality of what was to come. Let me give you an example. When Cass and I moved into the place that we live now, when we started coming to church here, we were super excited because in the backyard were two peach trees. And we're thinking, this, this will play for itself. Like, this is going to be so good. And we walked out in the backyard and there were some kind of rotten peaches on the ground and we're thinking, well, it's summer. That happens. You know, we were too late for those. A few weeks later, some more dropped. And we're like, oh, they're, 
they're rotten. And we're like, well, maybe we'll pick our own and then we'll let them ripen and see what happens. Um, as it turns out, our peach trees are living death, right? Like these peaches, they, they're, they're dead before they're born. And the, the peach tree oozes this kind of toxic stuff all over the path. Like it is all dead. And the, the thing about first fruits are, is, and I think if we'd taken first fruits seriously, is we would have known from the beginning, from the first peaches, that everything, the whole game was over and cut those suckers down straight away. Because first fruits, the first bit of fruit shows the quality of the whole. It shows what is to come. It's a full preview. The rest of the crop doesn't vary from the first fruit. And this is very significant for knowing about our resurrection because it says that Christ is, our, is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. The reason you can have confidence in your own resurrection is because it's already been seen. 500 people saw it in verses 1 to 11, saw the quality of life that is ours in Christ by faith. It's been seen already, the new life in Christ. The first fruits have been tasted and touched and known so that we can have confidence that as was Christ's body, so will be our body. And when you have that kind of certainty that it gives birth to freedom, you might be thinking, well, the, the only access I have to, to that is, is this text, and it's so old. And how do I know that it actually is what it says? Well, here's, here's, this is above my, my place where I study. It's called P46, and it's from the second century. And if you can see a little dot halfway down, that's the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. This text is 100 years from when 1 Corinthians was written, which in ancient terms is minuscule. Normally, it's thousands, a thousand years between the original and the copy. Here, it is a hundred. We have in our possession evidence that what you read here is the reality that was tasted and touched, the risen Lord Jesus, the first fruits. Just as in Adam, when he died, so we all died. So in Christ who has been raised, so we can all be raised. Have confidence, friend, in the word of the gospel, in your ability to be raised. I think as that certainty grows, and here's another little one a bit further on, um, and same parchment. Um, as that certainty grows in us, it gives birth to a freedom that is much better than the freedom of YOLO. Uh, if you have a look at verse 30, you see what this does to Paul. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. See, this is the freedom that the resurrection gives Paul. I might die today. Oh, well, that'll be okay. It doesn't matter that I'm going to lose my wealth today. It doesn't matter that I'm going to lose out today. It doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm going to face persecution or political exile today. Because my Jesus has been raised from the dead and so will be my body. It's the freedom to look at life without the fear of death and to go at life trusting that everything in the end is secure. You can die every day. Knowing that the resurrection is coming. You see, hope gives birth to freedom.
real fruit to live by. But the second thing about hope, and this is where it gets more fun, is that hope doesn't just give birth to freedom. Hope breathes fire. And at this point, we need to start asking the question, well, when? When does a resurrection come? And Paul goes into details here. And what he starts to open out for us is that it's not just Jesus' resurrection and then our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is kind of like the opening pass or the opening play of a whole sequence of things. In the resurrection, Jesus is anointed a king and sent out to conquer until the time when he conquers death and hands it back to God the Father. That's what he says. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, what would happen uh, in the ancient world is a Caesar or a king, when he had an unruly territory, would get a general and would place all of his authority on the general and send the general to the territory to conquer and restore and renew his authority. Then the general would come back and hand back the authority to the king after he'd conquered on the king's behalf. And so what you see in Corinthians here is a similar thing. Christ the Son is raised to life and handed authority to conquer in the power of God the Father all of his enemies. And our resurrection from the dead is his last victory, his final conquering, his final renewal of all things so that then he can hand everything back to his Father and everything is all in all. You see, one of the problems we have with the resurrection is that our scope is too small. The resurrection is about Jesus being anointed king and becoming conqueror and doing what Psalm 110 says in the power of God's spirit through the word of the gospel and then in his coming for judgment. The resurrection is just the opening play. And when you start to see the vista that Jesus' resurrection is opening up and the timeline and the cosmic direction of all things, when you start getting that hope into your heart and your soul, that's when hope starts to breathe fire. You see what Paul said in verse 32? I'd never seen this before, but I think it's incredible. Um, It seems like a throwaway line, but there's a lot in there. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, What have I gained? Wild beasts in Ephesus. When Paul went to Ephesus, Ephesus was a big center of sorcery. And what happened when he preached the gospel is a whole bunch of people got saved and a whole bunch of witches and wizards just burned their occult books on the spot. And and then there was this big uproar where one of the the, the chief guys who made uh, idols for the idol of the city uh, put Paul before the whole council and this whole political thing kind of blew up. And so in Ephesus, Paul was facing political and spiritual forces way beyond his control. But that's what you do when you know that the conquering Lord Jesus has been raised to life again. You proclaim his gospel. You live with his lordship in defiance of all that is in contradiction to him. Hope breathes fire. This is how Jürgen Moltmann puts it. He was a soldier in World War II. 
He saw his best friend blown to pieces next to him. He was then taken to England after the war into a war camp and learned about Auschwitz and about the concentration camps and found out what he'd been fighting for behind the lines. And somehow in the midst of that, he said God found him in his desolation. Someone who knows despair very well says this about hope. Faith, wherever it develops into hope, causes not rest, but unrest. Not patience, but impatience. It doesn't calm the unquiet heart. It is itself the unquiet heart in man. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. You see, when you know what's coming, when you know about the defeat of death, when you know about the restoration of all things and the throwing aside of all ungodly authority, you start to look around at the world and at persecuted Christians and at poverty and at trafficking and at the the parts of our society that are a mess, and you say, this is not what the Lordship of Christ will bring about. And when you start to see the dissonance between what will be and what is, your hope starts to breathe fire. And that's why there is so much more passion and imagination and verve for living in viewing the resurrection than in viewing your impending death. The resurrection gives a mightier, bigger, fuller vision of how to live even now than our death could ever. Hope breathes fire. And so finally, third thing about hope, and this is where it all lands really, And this is why Paul has put resurrection at the end of Corinthians rather than at the beginning. Is that the resurrection and hope, it actually reimagines the whole of life. Have a look at where he lands in verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. You get to that point of the chapter and you think, we haven't really been talking about sin, Paul. I don't really know if you've been on about that. We've been talking about resurrection. But what Paul sees here is that their ignorance about God and his purposes in Christ is the reality that underwrites all the other issues in the book. You see, when you know about the resurrection of the dead and the the movement of the whole universe in the direction of the Lordship of Christ, all of a sudden what you do with your sexuality makes more sense and the sacrifices you make to do it. All of a sudden, the way you do church together and the sacrifices you make to preach the gospel start to make sense. All of a sudden, living not in the wisdom of the world but Christ's wisdom begins to make sense. The resurrection and knowing God in that way brings a reimagining of life. It underwrites, it energizes, it provides the vision for life. That's why it's here at the end. The resurrection calls us to reimagine everything. Hope reimagines life. Whenever I think about reimagining life, I think about my friend Rachel. Cass and I met Rachel in year 12, and she was so brilliant. We always thought she'd be a journalist because she was just such a beautiful writer. Grew up in a private school on the North Shore and she was just going to be headed for some incredible stuff. But when she was in her uh, late teens and early 20s, um, she got that 
fire that hope breathed. And she started learning about South Africa and young girls around Durban who were often assaulted when they were young and didn't have anyone to help them and had such a different experience of life than what she did. What she did when she finished university was hopped on a plane to Durban with very little money and very few connections and became a rape counsellor in Durban. We knew it was only uh, going to be till she found an African boy that she'd never come home. That's true, she'd never come home. Um, you know, that's a life reimagined by the resurrection. Because what does it matter losing your career? What does it matter losing your wealth? What does it matter losing our time? When you know the resurrection is coming, or when you get to proclaim the good news to the poor around, in and around Durban. You see, hope reimagines life. And I'm not asking you to go to Durban today. But I do know that there's probably at least one decision in the week to come that could be recolored by the resurrection. Recolored by the security that the resurrection gives you. Recolored by the freedom that the resurrection gives you. Recolored by the fire, the dissonance between now and then gives you. Maybe it's to do with your money that you got back from your tax return because you did it really early. Or from uh, something to do with your relationships and at work, or something to do, some decision that you're, you're weighing on, or something really small, something. Begin to let the resurrection recolor your life. Because the resurrection has infinite more resource for you than the despair of our culture. Maybe it is that you've been living without hope. Without hope of things getting better. Maybe it is that you want a new beginning with Jesus today. That you want to rise again. Commit yourself into his hands. And the gift of life is yours. Our Father, we, uh, we don't deserve to be raised from the dead. We deserve to die in our sin. And yet here Jesus comes suffering our death, being raised to new life, conquering King, offering us life without end. Father, we have such a shallow view of Him and of our hope, and we pray in your spirit, by Your Spirit that You would kindle in our hearts the certainty of the hope that You have given us, and that that would spread to every dimension of our life. Father, there are people sitting here and they want hope. And Father, I pray that you'd show them the hope that awaits them in the resurrection. There are people here, Lord, who want that new beginning that you offer. And so they come and they trust Jesus' death and his resurrection and ask for a fresh start. Father, empower us, we pray, with your hope. In Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.